At a time like this, it's easy to see why local news is so important and why that news should be free for everyone who needs it to be. Your support of KCUR makes this essential reporting possible. If you can, please donate. KCUR.org slash give. And thanks. Good morning and welcome to Up to Date Special Coverage Coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. What should you be saying to your kids about the coronavirus? Dr. Wes Crenshaw joins us in just a few minutes to offer a few tips. Later, we'll answer your medical questions about a virus that just won't go away. And we'll talk to Asian Americans in Kansas City about FBI reports that indicate the community is facing an increase in hate crimes. But we begin with a look at the news with KCUR's Sam Zeff. Sam, good morning. What are you looking for today, Sam? Well, the Johnson County Board of Commissioners yesterday scheduled a special meeting for this afternoon. As you know, governments all over America uh, are trying to figure out how to deal with this. Uh, Johnson County has more COVID-19 cases than any other uh, county in the uh, in the state. Today, there's no details with the agenda, uh, but they're looking to talk about uh, the health system capacity, how are hospitals doing, call center numbers. Johnson County has a call center for that, community testing, uh, and investigations update. Uh, that's at three o'clock this afternoon. Like a lot of these meetings, it's all virtual, uh, but they're still trying to get a handle on that. Okay. There's a special meeting uh, as well, uh, a story about crime in Kansas City this morning. What's that about, Sam? So we sent, uh, it. Uh, anecdotally, it appeared that uh, crime may be a little down in Kansas City uh, because of the stay-at-home right. order. Uh, it turns out that there really is a mixed bag of that, uh, and Kyle Palmer landed that story this morning. The answer, according to Kansas City Police, is mixed. KCPD says Priority 1 calls for incidents like shootings and armed robberies are down a little more than 6% this March compared to last. Even though those 911 calls are down, KCPD spokesman Sergeant Jake Bikina says violent crime in Kansas City continues at about the same pace. There is no major downtrend in any type of violent crime that we look at on a regular basis. Non-fatal shootings, he says, are actually up year to year, as are homicides. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Kyle Palmer. Funny, because at least intuitively, you would think that maybe violent crimes would be taking a hiatus right now, but apparently that's not the case. Uh, sure is. Uh, the streets are pretty empty. Uh, you drive around and you see hardly anybody, including uh, Kansas City Police, although the police department was quite clear uh, that they're staffed adequately right now. Uh, but if, in fact, uh, COVID-19 hits the KCPD like it's hit the NYPD in New York, uh, they do have contingency plans to bring in detectives, to bring in other uh, officers or detectives from other details to put them out on patrol because that's the priority for KCPD. And you hear all, all along about all kinds of precautions that the police are taking to avoid uh, an outbreak within the department. Right. We talked about this uh, last week. They're maintaining social distance when they go out into a call. They're trying to maintain uh, six feet of distance. Uh, and the department says they've laid in a huge supply of hand sanitizer uh, and disinfected wipes. Okay, that's KCUR Sam Zeff. Uh, Sam, thanks for the update. You're welcome.
So how much should you tell your kids about COVID-19? How do you address the question of why your son or daughter can't go visit grandma these days? And how do you deal with an older child who doesn't want to go along with all the safe distancing recommendations that are flying around these days? When it comes to questions about how to talk to your kids about the coronavirus, we turn to Dr. Wes Crenshaw. Wes is a licensed psychologist in Kansas, an author and media commentator. Wes, it's always nice to have you. Good morning. Good to be here, Steve. You know, parents, it strikes me, are under a lot of pressure these days as their kids ask questions about this new world that we're living in. You know, come to think of it, maybe kids are under a lot of pressure too, Wes, with all this change. But let's begin with young kids and help parents answer some questions that kids probably are asking these days. Uh, One of them is, why can't I play with my friends? Well, in any of the sort of social distancing questions that kids are going to have with the exception of maybe tinies like the the, you know the preschool kids right the best thing to do is to talk to them um calmly but like they're intelligent creatures i've always been impressed you know that's not the age group i work with as much but a lot of my staff do here and we staff cases all the time and discuss them and i'm always impressed with younger kids ability to to handle a discussion with an adult when the adult is sincere and um, honest and treats them with respect. And I would start at that point. Don't tell kids, even little ones, don't worry, it's going to be okay. They know that's not true. (laughs) They they know that. Be honest and say, you know, this is a scary time and it's okay to feel afraid. Your feelings are, uh, are fair and honest. And then what we're doing, always lay out Here's what we're doing to uh, to save ourselves the problems of being ill. And that is all the stuff we've been hearing about hand washing and distancing and all that. And that's why you can't visit Johnny or your grandma or your friends or you visit them at a distance uh, until this is over. You know, I think that's exactly the opposite kind of advice that a lot of parents might walk into a conversation uh their their natural tendency would be to say hey i gotta sort of couch my language and maybe dumb this down and maybe spin this in a positive way and you're saying "Uh uh-uh level with them um i'll tell you what kids and i i go down to about fifth to sixth grade in my age group i work with and i've learned more from those people over the years as you know than anybody, I, any graduate school education I ever had. They can have an intelligent conversation with you. They know when you're not being straight with them. Huh. They know it <laughs> right down the line. And so just say, we're, we're having a hard time in the world right now. I can't go to work because um, I, uh, you know, we, we mix at the office and we might get it and bring it home. So I have to be home right now mm-hmm. or telecommute. Just explain things like that. And in that calm voice, the opposite of that is parents just panicking right now. And we mm-hmm. see a little of this where they're uh, they're they're scaring <laughs> their kids uh, with the way they're doing social distancing. And you don't want to do that. Um, I'm wondering to what extent this virus and nervousness around the virus is is occupying your conversations with uh, the young people who come to see you each week, Wes. About 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week. Wow. Um, it, it, now, it varies. It, what's interesting is uh, that my anxious people are not having a very hard time right now. And 
uh, it took me a while to catch on to that, why that is. And it's uh, it's the same reason my very uncoordinated daughter can ride the L and the bus standing up in Chicago with no problem. Hmm. She's used to the world wobbling around. And so she's adapted to that. The anxious people are are very much in their zone here. They know how to handle these situations. Folks who aren't used to feeling anxious are really having a hard time because they are now experiencing something that's uncommon for them and they don't quite know how to respond. Now, that's interesting to me. Again, I'm not sure I would have come to that conclusion on my own. Me, me neither. I, <laughs> I feel better. I was really surprised to yeah. see it. How about this question, Wes? When can we go see our grandparents? When? Oh, the question. I thought you wanted me to give you permission, Steve. <laughs> um, it's, it's sort of Sad the same to say thing. I yeah. lost mine a long time ago. Yeah. Exactly. You know, say to kids, this uh, disease, this uh, virus is uh, most dangerous to older folks. I've said to my kids, you know, y'all are at l- very low risk. I am not as a person who is diabetic with high blood pressure. So when you remember to wash your hands, you don't need to to think about it for you. Think about it for me. And it is also important for their own hygiene. But if you can get kids interested in other people and their needs, kids will often do a duty to others more than they will think about it themselves. Um, again, you want to raise their anxiety to just the right level, not too much, not too little. So you say we don't want to infect our elders because they may do much more poorly with the virus. And kids, you know, they may not understand it at the molecular level, mm-hmm. but they can understand the concept. Yeah. What if they ask, Wes, why can't I do any of the things I could do before this stupid <laughs> virus came around? Yeah. Um, so I have, a, I have a little bit divergent view on this. And where I think we've gone wrong with kids and young adults, too, is kind of scream at them, stay away from everyone. Uh, I have two, two sets of parents, I mean, in group groupings. One set who's who's saying that we're going to stay in the house and send one person to the store and right. all that. And the other group are saying, let's take our pickup trucks or cars and park them in a parking lot in a circle. And we'll sit in the trunk or in the back of the SUV and tailgate together and keep, you know, 20 feet between us and sing and play games right, and right, stuff. Right. I'm I'm in that group. I think we are in this for a long time. The the data I have indicates that this will peak in Kansas uh, around the 1st of May. And that means we've got weeks and weeks after that, well into the summer. Uh, it's one thing to ask kids to do this for 10 or 14 days, which is what parents keep telling kids, which is just not true. It's another to do this into the summer. And we need to find ways to be together apart. And I think kids can do that. They're going to need oversight and supervision but we're going to have to make up some nice games to play i think you get that pool noodle you know that we swim with yeah and and play tag with it it's just (laughs) about the right length and how fun will it be to whack people with that thing at a six foot distance uh the joy but we're going to have to find some ways to do that very safely because you know activity is important but we can't do most of the kinds of activities we've done for a long time 
If you're just joining us, so you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We're talking to Dr. Wes Crenshaw about how to talk to your kids about all things coronavirus. If you want to join our conversation, 816-235-2888, or you can tweet us at KCURUpToDate. Um, how about this one, Wes? Should parents make younger kids feel like they're contributing to an effort by washing their hands and safe distancing and the like? Does that make sense as an approach? Yes, please do. Um, it, it, you know, kids vary dramatically one to another, but younger ones like generally like to please adults. They like to feel like they're doing something that is helpful um, that may or may not <clears throat> translate into loving to do chores or something. But if it's something they feel like they're doing to help mom or dad or grandma, they will be more on board with it. Now, I got to remind everybody, no matter how old your kids are, please do not presume that they are going to remember these things the way adults do. That's just not developmentally a thing. Hmm. Uh, The more anxious kids will remember stuff. In fact, sometimes they can't get it out of their head. But most people are going to lean in the other direction. And so parents will have to constantly be reminding them, remember our uh, hand washing, remember our distancing, remember what we're, we're doing for COVID here, little clues like that, mm-hmm. constant reminder, don't get frustrated with kids because this isn't their number one obsession right now. Uh, be reminders. Man, I tell you, I'm really feeling for parents these days. I mean, yeah. I'm, I can't tell you how many times I've thought to myself, boy, I'm grateful my kids are older because trying to keep young kids occupied and yeah. staying at home during a very difficult time like this, that just strikes me as really tough stuff. Yeah, it is. It's very rough. And, what you know, we're doing we're we're open for business and we're doing a lot of it. And a lot of it is on video and we're having to rethink the entire mechanism of delivering services for little kids because of exactly what you're saying is they you know they like to watch a youtube but they don't they don't think about talking to their therapist that way so we're little or younger kids are really challenged in a lot of ways uh by this whole experience i'm wondering what what advice you might offer parents about how to keep their heads screwed on straight as they spend day after day after day inside a house, uh, sometimes alone. Uh, maybe maybe the spouse is off working. They're in the house alone trying to take care of kids, and they maybe have work to do themselves. Uh, it is it is excruciating. At the, I, we could do another two and a half hours on that topic alone. Mm-hmm. The, the short version is – and, and this has been hard for some parents to accept. It, you, they are not uh, trained, quote unquote, most parents to do this. They have they have not been stay-at-home parents. There are many parents in the greater Kansas City metro that in this when the summer comes, uh, and it de- obviously depends on your income level. But when the summer comes, they either have their kids in boys and girls club. Or they have their kids with nannies, or they have their kids at camp all summer. Nothing wrong with that. My, I, my son loves to go to camp in the summer, but it they don't have an experience of one to one relation to their kids, especially teaching, oversight in schools, all of that kind of stuff. So they these are foreigners in their home all of a sudden. Where'd these people come from? And they're having to actually develop a culture to deal with that. Some are more uh, agile about that than others, uh, but in general, 
that's creating all the other problems. And parents don't even quite know what to expect from kids. We did a survey, I write for Attitude Magazine for the ADD folks, and we did a survey the other day and it got 500 responses in about a 12-hour period of people struggling with the issues you're describing. And so many of them I read were issues that are really problems the kids had long before COVID, but the parent was just now getting a firsthand experience of it. That's really interesting. Um, Some parents might wonder how much they should tell their kids about COVID-19 when it comes to the actual disease itself and, and sort of how it works and how it spreads. Yeah, this is super developmental uh, related, like the the older they are. You know, you know, many times in this show, we've talked about sex and sexuality. It's really a good parallel for this. For younger kids, they just need to know kind of whatever is helpful to them. The, the, this is a virus. Where does it, how does it get into my body? Um, what can it do? Why, why is it the way it is? Whatever they'll tell you when they're bored with the discussion. Uh, for older kids, they're, believe you me, m- my kids are media consumers between podcasts and uh, news. I can't believe sometimes when I tell my kids, my one of them 16 and one of them's 23, when I tell my kids, oh, I saw this on the news the other day, and then my 16-year-old son says, well, actually, this is the story. So, so <laughs> Here, Dad. They're, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They're very knowledgeable about things. Your job is to help them process that information. Also to, to help kids be good consumers of information and use trusted sources. And I'm talking about kids fourth, fifth grade and up. This is a great opportunity to talk with them about science, the scientific method and how to evaluate um, journalism. And I know you teach that, so you know what I'm talking about. There's a whole separate uh, hour there yeah. in, in of itself, too, Wes. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. Dr. Wes Crenshaw is with us. We're talking about how you can talk to your kids about uh, a pandemic that won't go away. 816-235-2888 is our phone number here, or tweet us at KCUR up-to-date. Um, here's one I've, I've been actually seeing a little bit about on social media. What about older kids? West who might be more rebellious about the restrictions they're facing. They're seeing uh, their friends in some cases with more lenient parents. They're getting together. They're hanging out. And maybe mom and dad are saying, no, you cannot go out. You can't join your buddies. Again, that's a tough situation for a mom or dad. Yeah. And uh, tell you, over the years, I can guarantee you that if kids are not on board Uh, And I've had this discussion with kids a lot in the last couple of weeks. If they're not on board with all of this, then they're going to push back. And the kid's power to push back usually exceeds a parent's power to control them. And parents, even parents who've had just really great uh, what we call authoritative parenting skills in the past are suddenly now super control freaks and – uh, and nowhere is this weirder than in the young adult population. I've never seen parents overparent young adults like they are right now. Um, it, it, it's this, it's astonishing. And mm-hmm. kids are really fighting back on that. Now, is this serious? Yes, it is. But this idea of teaching kids how to be together apart is going to win a longer term solution 
than the idea that we all need to sort of cower in our house and maybe we'll sit on the porch and wave. Um, I think the parents who are doing, you know, use the word lenient, I might use the the term a a little more uh, um, less restrictive is probably the Mm -hmm. term I would use. Mm-hmm. model are probably going to win in the end because their kids are going to feel like they're partners in this process. And if you don't feel, if your kids don't feel like they're partners in the process, longer term, you're in trouble. And we've just got to quit thinking this is going to be over in 10 days. Repeatedly, I've said to parents when they're doing this high control thing, I said, what are you shooting for here? Like, how long do you think this is going to be that kids can do this? Well, it's only for another week or week and a half. No, right, right. <laughs> it's not. Right. It'll be sustainability is the word I would use. We got this question via Twitter. Is this a good time for parents to rediscover play, Wes? Is it tough for parents to revert to being kids themselves for a while with their kids? Super good question. And the answer is that is hard. There are certain parents who are really naturally kind of playful, carefree folk. They're in the minority. And when you're sitting around being super stressed, you're not thinking how fun it is to build a Lego castle, but that, that is, we do, there's a whole TV show about that, by the way, the Lego masters, if you want to watch how to do it, I've seen that, yeah. it's great. But yes, I, I think the, the Twitter tweet person is very much on uh, track there. We, we do need to do play. And as much as we can get outdoors and do some of it, I've been thrilled in Lawrence, my wife and I go walking to see more people out walking with families than I think I've ever seen before. That's a good activity. Just doing things with kids, play, great. Um, I've been getting families. My son's a big Dungeons and Dragons fan, and I think that's a great activity to do indoors that's creative and imaginative and doesn't require an Xbox. What about the idea that maybe it's a good time to expect kids to take on a little bit more work around the house, uh, especially if one parent's work is, is is regarded as essential and uh, he or she's got to be on the computer or doing whatever they have to do. Well, if I wanted to be flippant, I'd say ha-ha um, or LOL or whatever. Uh, the, the more serious answer is you you said in your opening that kids are probably also really stressed right now, and that is the truth. And a lot of parents are – trying to bring structure to kids' lives, which is a good idea. But too much of that is parents really wanting the kids to clean the house. And, you know, this is a great time for us to get all the cleaning done. That, you know, probably this is not a good time Hmm. to do that. So now what I would do is have the kids be in charge of themselves, do their own wash, um, take their trash out, maybe a a chore or two that you specifically give but I've got people giving kids chore lists that are as long as your arm. And this is just not the time to keep the idle hands occupied. That's Dr. Wes Crenshaw. He's a licensed psychologist in Kansas, joins us regularly to talk about kids and all kinds of questions regarding kids and how to, how to deal with them. Wes, always great to have some time with you. Thanks for making some room for us today. Fantastic to talk to you, Steve. You bet.
Well, we've been asking listeners for their questions about COVID-19, and quite a few of them have come back about testing, the nature of the virus, and just how long we'll be social distancing. We had Dr. Gene Olinger on the show a few weeks ago. He's a science advisor for MRI Global. That's the Kansas City-based group focused on health and safety, and he works in their uh, Gatorsburg, Virginia office. He's been trained in immunology, developing diagnostics, drugs, and vaccines. We went back to Dr. Olinger to get his answer answers to your questions. And here's one. Why has it been so hard to come by tests? Unfortunately, there was a few issues with the CDC and deploying their assay. They had some uh, manufacturing issues and they were unable to keep up with demand at that time. Um, from the commercial side, it's uh, commercial companies usually come secondary to the public health system. Once it became clear that the uh, virus was uh, spreading at a larger number of people than SARS and MERS, um, the commercial entities jumped in fast and furious and actually have done a great job at filling in the, uh, the gap that exists in the diagnostic world. We've been hearing reports of people having to wait a week or more to get their tests. Is that normal? From the time you uh, give a sample to getting a test result is critical. In clinical diagnostic works, we always say time matters, and patients and clinicians want to know as soon as possible um, what the situation is going on with the patient. Typically, it takes about two hours from the time a sample is taken to the time that you can actually have an answer. Um, And then there's always the delay in actually getting it to the patients. So if it's done off-site, getting it back to the patients. During the Ebola outbreak, this is one of the major problems we had um, responding was that typically you'd have a centralized lab, and it would take up to four days sometimes to get a result back to a patient who's waiting at a, a triage unit. When will will we have enough testing kits in Kansas City so that we know we're on the other side of the peak, doctor? So we're working with a lot of commercial entities to, um, one, to help develop methods in which we can store the sample to make sure that we don't have sample degradation as it's being shipped and processed, but also working with clients that are working on faster equipment, that uh, faster tests that can actually answer the question quicker. So um, I expect in the next two or three weeks, we're going to see a very big difference in the number of assays and the number of kits that are available to run tests. How long will we be feeling the effects of, of this virus? The current standard is that well, we should reach peak levels of infection by early May, but uh, keep in mind that that will mean that as time goes on, um, that's the back half, so we still have a lot of cases that will occur um, later in May. Now, as a virologist, my hope is that um, typically coronaviruses disappear around the May time frame just naturally, so that the naturally occurring common colds disappear and then reappear in the fall. So um, we're hoping that a lot of the cases will disappear through that normal coronavirus cold phase that occurs every year. So when will all this end? I think, you know, nature is um, pretty consistent. If we do see a, a waning of disease, we'll see it towards the summer. But unfortunately, nature will do what it normally does, which is reseed itself and infect more people in the fall. So depending on the number of people infected this round, if we get less than you know 40%, um, we should expect the you know 80% herd immunity is what we're shooting for. Um, that should occur in the fall and the winter of next year. That was Dr. Gene Olinger answering your questions submitted by our listening audience. If you've got a question about COVID-19 and its effects on Kansas City, let us know at kcur.org slash askkcur. After a short break, when we come back, we'll talk about the impact of all this on Asian Americans in our community. I'm Steve Kraske, and you're listening to -to up-to-date special coverage, Coronavirus in Kansas City. 
Welcome back to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. Federal officials are warning of an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans as the coronavirus crisis spreads. The virus began late last year in eastern China. The FBI is braced for a surge of hate crimes in Asian American communities based on the assumption that some U.S. citizens will associate COVID-19 with China. In fact, the FBI noted crimes against Asian Americans are already arising. Given that, we thought it was a good time to check in with members of that community here in the Kansas City area. With us, Paku Hur is principal and lead consultant at Ching Development Group. Paku, nice to have you. Thanks for having me, okay. Steve. You know, you told our producer, Melody Roll, oh, thank you. that you've been uh, self-conscious about your status as an Asian American and that you've even been hesitant to clear your throat in public. And I'm wondering why. It's true. So really, um, as early as almost a month and a half or two months ago, my children and I actually had a very disturbing experience around race and um, just being ill. So we've had the flu this winter, like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And we were at Ward Parkway Mall shopping and my daughter was coughing, she's 11. And she said, oh, the coronavirus. And I looked at her and I said, you can't do that. You can't say that. You can't joke about that. You can't even pretend like you wanna be funny about it. And the funny thing was um, in the aisle with us was a white woman and on the other side of her, another white person. And what I had noticed was that the woman who was next to me um, started getting very agitated when she saw my daughter coughing and my kid kind of made a joke. And I turned to her and I said, we don't have the coronavirus. We absolutely don't have it. It's just a cough. We had the flu. And she was saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Now, it could seem that I was overreacting. But what I had noticed already was on the other side of her, the person who was not with her, who was not at least presenting as an Asian American person, had also been coughing, but she wasn't responding to that person the same way that she did to me and my child. Um, and it was our first experience in public in this environment where I really uh, felt incredibly self-conscious, but also very aware that the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic right now right. is very different on Asian Americans. And for the record, you're not Chinese, right? I'm not. I'm Southeast Asian. But the funny thing is, while there are lots of people who've created a whole narrative of foreignness and illness and um, in which we have uh, talked about China as the, the place where this began, that you don't have to be Chinese to experience the impacts of that because most people don't know the difference between Asian ethnic groups. And so I can walk down the street and people will just assume that I'm Chinese and will act out whatever biases they may have, uh, fed by political rhetoric, fed by the sense of permission to talk about Asian people in a really negative way because of this illness, there are lots of factors. But being Chinese ethnically is not a requirement for this kind of bias. I want to bring uh, James uh, Chang into our conversation. He's general manager of Waldo uh, Thai. Uh, James, nice to, nice to have you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you said when the fires first, first blew up in this country, you didn't feel comfortable venturing out. And I'm wondering why not. 
Um, first of all, I, I am obviously Chinese American. I am a first generation um, immigrant to this country with my family. Um, we've lived in the Midwest for the majority of our lives, so we've always been a minority. Um, racism, whether it, it was upfront or inadvertent, was something that I've kind of gotten used to over the years and with my life. Mm -hmm. And when all this happened, I just didn't quite know how to handle myself, to be honest, because I, I mean, we stick, I stick out like a sore thumb around here. So, yeah. And you feel that way. Um, I don't feel that way as bad as I did before. Um, and I do think that a lot of it was myself trying to mitigate any chances of over racism towards me. But you also said when the fire virus first blew up, you didn't feel comfortable venturing out. Are you still feeling that way? Yeah, um, yes and no. I, I mean, I still have to venture out. I still have to run errands and I still have to go to work. Um, but I'm a bit more cautious about my social interactions with people. And that strikes me as kind of sad. Um, I, I, it, it can be sad. I, it is actually kind of sad, but at the same time, um, I'm not just responsible for myself. I also have a child and a wife that I'm responsible for. So any any chances that I don't think I should take, I probably won't. Hmm. Paku, you work on race equity issues, and at times you've wondered if you're overthinking all this. What do you wrestle with exactly? Are you there, Paku? Um, James, how about this idea if you should even be wearing a mask? What are you thinking about on that on that end? Well, to be honest, um, I'm from Taiwan, uh, Taiwanese Chinese. Uh, a big way of, of of them mitigating the COVID-19 exposure and having such low cases was from the beginning, the government was very proactive. They did everything they could. Um, wearing a mask was mandated in public um, anywhere you go. And that, even though if, even though it's just a cloth mask, it still helps. Mm-hmm. So you're okay doing it then? Yes, I'm completely fine with wearing a mask. It's not comfortable, but I'd rather wear a mask. And when I wear a mask, it's not even about um, protecting myself, but rather protecting others around me. Because COVID-19, it, it can lay dormant inside your body for mm -hmm. X amount of time. Right, right. Uh, what about the idea of how the media has handled all this, James, as you watch and read on a daily basis? Um, uh, some folks have said that the media, the, uh, the, the initial imagery around this infection was deeply racialized. Did you notice the same thing? Um, it's, it's hard not to notice the same thing, especially when the president calls it the Chinese virus, mm -hmm. to be honest. That definitely doesn't help. Um, it did. It, it also doesn't help that the virus supposedly started. It was well, started in China, and then the images of um, the lady eating the bat 
and the, somehow that got linked together when that video wasn't even shot in China. That did not help at all. Mm-hmm. When the president, James, calls this the Chinese virus, when you first heard that, what did you think? Um, I wasn't shocked, to be honest. Um, I feel like that's almost his, that's the, just the way that he thinks. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's disheartening for sure. But at the same time, like after, ex, after what, uh, two years of his, his administration, it really does not surprise me to be honest. Paku, what did you think when the president referred to this thing as a Chinese virus? Well, the first thing, um, I will agree with James, I was not entirely surprised. Um, but I immediately had this sense of dread because what I know is that like, you know, language matters. I've been doing race equity and cultural change work for over 20 years. And language and the words that we use are deeply important when it comes to the cultures we create. So when somebody says something is the Chinese virus versus the virus was first experienced in China, there are two very different kinds of messages. And so you begin, what, what I knew was gonna happen already was that people were going to begin to culturalize and, and then individually personify this virus as the fault of a particular group of people. Hmm. And you can see that that has happened. When you look at the way that the racial hate crimes are broken out, like the fact that somebody in Texas stabbed a Chinese family, a two-year-old child, with a two-year-old child and a six-year-old child at a Sam's Club, because they had already decided and realized and made the connection that the Chinese virus meant Chinese people are bad, which means if you look sort of Chinese, somebody can willfully commit an act of violence against you as a way to protect themselves or the country from a virus. Like you can see the way the pathology works. Right. And the minute I heard the president say that, I just, I, I, I actually turned to my husband and I said, watch what's gonna happen. Watch what's gonna happen. Everything is going to start turning against Chinese people, and by extension, anybody who people just presumably thinks is Chinese, irrespective of their ethnic identity. And you're saying and it's, it's it, played it did. Out. Yeah. It did, and it is playing out. And I think what was also interesting, you know, what James said about these images of these wet markets and people eating bats, just, you know, I, I've been thinking about this, and it's not like people fell out of a tree and said, oh, eating bats is gross, and Chinese people do gross things and eat gross things. That if you look at the history of Sinophobia across the, of the globe, but especially here in the United States, which is like the bias of the hatred of Chinese people, Chinese culture. That way back in the 1800s, when the Chinese people, when Chinese people came here to build the transcontinental railroads, there was a lot of conversation about Chinese people eating rats, Chinese people eating vermin. Bring the Chinese; they'll clear out all the rats. Chi- like there's so this. It's not like people are somehow having some kind of a cultural bias today that has never been here before. It's been here for centuries. It's a replay or a redux of what we were already doing in the late 1700s and early 1800s here in the United States. Hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We're talking about uh, with Asian Americans about the discrimination they're facing in the wake of the outbreak of COVID-19. If you want to join our conversation, 816-235-2888, or you can tweet us at KCUR up-to-date. Paku, before I lost you a few minutes ago, I was saying that, as you've mentioned here, you work on race equity issues, and at times you've wondered if you're overthinking all this, do you still wrestle with that? And what do you wrestle with exactly? So I wrestle with it these days. Um, 
because I'm also a parent and I'm always thinking, am I teaching my children and, and am I myself responding to a world that's given me lots of examples to say, I should be rightfully suspicious about the way I'm experiencing race or somebody's response to me that I'm pretty sure is racialized in this moment. Um, like, you know, sometimes I think, oh, maybe I'm just thinking about it too much. But the truth is that like 99% of the time, I'm, I'm right. 99% <laughs> of the time, when I hold my experience next to somebody in front of me at the grocery store, or when I hold my experience next to my white friends who I will say, hey, this is what I've experienced. And they've said, wow, we've never even thought about that. Mm -hmm. There's enough of a clue that my heightened consciousness is not because I'm paranoid. My heightened consciousness is because I have a breadth of life experience and Asian American people, black folks, indigenous people, people of color, people who we would identify as people of color have enough life experience to tell us that our extreme caution is not without reason. Now, I think in these instances, I've also tried to be really fair. In the way that I was telling you in the shoe store, I thought, okay, like maybe this woman is just really anxious. But the clue to me that there was something else possibly happening was that somebody else exhibiting similar behavior on the other side of her who was not, did not look like me, did mm -hmm. not receive that kind of treatment. And so I have to say, my life experience tells me that something else is happening here. And we know for sure the hard evidence is showing us, the data shows us around the increase in hate crimes that people aren't making stuff up. James, what are your friends, uh, your Asian American friends saying to you about their experiences in Kansas City? Um, as you guys know, I work in the hospitality service industry. Um, it's been really, really hard on us. Um, not only just Asian Americans, but the whole community in general. Um, as for the Asian American and specifically the Chinese community, um, I have, I've talked to a lot of owners that have had to literally close their doors because they weren't they went from barely sustaining to having zero customers every day. And I mean, these are people that it's a, these are mom and pop shops that maybe have one or two employees and they've literally worked all their lives and put all their savings into one restaurant hmm. and only to have it shut down on them for the unforeseeable future. Um, there how, was how about your restaurant, James at Waldo Thai? What, what, what are you saying? Um, we, uh, since we, we, we are very, very, very fortunate to have a very loyal customer base. Um, we do curbside pickup only in delivery. We no longer allow any customers to come inside the restaurant. We stop them at the door. We hand sanitize everything. And I think, um, we basically right after everything started to build momentum, we actually took a couple of days and um, revamped everything and try to make it as sustainable as it is. We did have to let go of some staff, but we made sure to let our staff let go, that were furloughed to let them know that like, as soon as mm -hmm. this period passed us, we want them back because we operate as a family. We're talking about Asian Americans and how they're being branded during this time of the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. 816-235-2888 is our phone number here, or you can tweet us at KCUR up to date. Mike from Kansas City, Kansas. Good morning. You there, Mike? Mike, go ahead. 
Well, maybe Mike can call back. I think he had a question of why we just can't call this the communist Chinese virus. Uh, Paku, what would you say to that? Um, I would first ask what communism has to do with the virus. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I have to chuckle at that question. Yeah. Um, particularly chuckle. because here in the United States, where we are, in fact, believing of ourselves to be a democracy, we have the highest rate of infection at this point. So I'm not sure. Um, what communism has anything to do with it, except that it's a dog whistle for something else. To me, that's a dog whistle. That's a, that, that there are words that we use that are coded language around race that embed nationalism, that embed ethnocentrism and xenophobia. And when I hear that, that's my initial response. You know, former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang caught a lot of flack not long ago over his assertion in a Washington Post op-ed that Asian Americans should be leaning into their Americanness right about now. Here's part of what he wrote, and I'm quoting here, we need to step up, help our neighbors, donate gear, vote, wear red, white, and blue, volunteer, fund aid organizations, and do everything in our power to accelerate the end of this crisis. We should show without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans who will do our part for our country in this time of need. James, what do you think? What did you think when you heard that? Um, but where where do we draw the line, though? Because I I am about as American as anybody can be. I have no accent. When I speak Chinese, I have an American accent. Um, but at the same time, it, it it's that fine balance to me of yes, I am American. Yes. I love this country. Yes, I am patriotic, but at the same time, my background is Chinese. I have family in Taiwan. We, I grew up, my first language was actually Chinese and Taiwanese. So while I understand his point, it's, it's that fine balance and not everybody's situation is the same. Not everybody feels comfortable being super, super American and mm-hmm. not and for basically forgetting the roots. And that's also something that um, a lot of um, a lot of a lot of uh, Chinese American kids that are born here. Um, the, the, our parents basically pushed us to be as American as you can to, you know, assimilate into the population or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. But um, I had to actually work hard to get back in touch with um my culture and Chinese history and things like that. Mm-hmm. Paku, what did you think of what uh, Andrew Chang had to say? Andrew Yang had to say. Um, I cringed when I heard him say that hmm. um, because my first reaction was, well, if people are being racist towards us, is the onus on Asian Americans to somehow become more palatable or whatever we imagine quote unquote Americanness to be? in order for people to stop acting out their racist behaviors towards us. Like, to me, that seemed a little bit confusing. Um, but what I, what I really spent a lot of time thinking about after reading what Andrew Yang had said was, you know, for most people in the United States, Asian Americans represent what is perpetually foreign. So I often say Asian Americans are the perpetual foreigner. It doesn't matter that I was born in Wisconsin. It doesn't matter that I speak English without an accent. It doesn't matter that if I got on the phone and nobody knew I had a quote unquote weird name, they wouldn't know that I look the way that I do. Now, those are all markers of how we do race and how we do culture and how we do this sense of Americanness. But my Americanness 
my accent and language, the way that I look, who I am. Like, I, I can't control that and make myself more palatable to folks if what the overarching mindset is, is that I'm already the foreigner. I'm, I'm, or some, you know, foreign exchange student who's going to go back to wherever I came from. Or, you know, the reason why people ask me why I speak English so well is because they expect that I won't. Like, underneath of all of that is this notion of being the perpetual foreigner. So when Andrew Yang says, be more American, wear red, white, and blue, I'll tell you what, there are plenty of people of color and Asian Americans who wear red, white, and blue who work in American industry, who studied here in the United States, who speak unaccented English, and who are still victims of hate crimes. And certainly now, I'm sure if we did a full scope study of the people who in the United States who are identify as Asian American, who have experienced bigotry, bias, or violence because of the virus, we would probably assess that many of them are in fact what we would call quote unquote American, except for the fact that we're Asian American. That's a hard phrase to hear. Perpetual foreigners, uh, uh, Paku, as I hear you talk about it. Let me go to some calls here and Morgan from Kansas City, Missouri. Morgan, nice to have you. Hey, thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, I just think that the the sense of humor that I see in all the mixed Asian, Asian and Anglo families that I know, I'm one of them, has been a good anecdote for this. Um, I'll give you one specifically. My sister-in-law just She's so blessed. She got a, a new job, and everyone was laid off except for her and a few people. And the worst thing she's experienced is this fellow who leaves the office, walks by her reception desk. He puts a mask on when he walks by her, and then he takes it off when he gets out the door. And she, obviously, that would hurt my feelings. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not Asian American, so I, I don't have to deal with it. But I, I commend her that she laughs about it. I mean, that's, that's the best she can do. She laughs about it. She makes jokes about it. Um, so just as somebody who observes my Chinese family um, and the way they deal with it, I, I'm seeing a lot of anecdotal humor. And I don't know. I think that's some good medicine for that. I, that that's all I wanted to say. I don't want to, I don't want to give you right. anecdotes that are going to get me in trouble. But the people who are laughing about it are the people who are moving forward well, I think. Morgan, thank you for the call. Let me go to Russ from Kansas City, Missouri. Russ, uh, you're on the air. Go quickly, if you would, hey Russ. There. I'm running yeah. short of time. My pleasure. Yeah, my comment is that this isn't really, really all that new. I mean, the Spanish flu started in Kansas. They called it the Spanish flu because the Spanish were the first ones to identify it as a separate strain because they were neutral during the war and had more resources. The uh, During Obama, when Ebola came over here, they were – there was an element saying, hey, he's bringing it over here to make it like Africa. Another BS. Now it's Asians. Racism, tribalism, the cultural bias that we see here, they're not new. They're like an iceberg, except the 90% is no longer below the waterline. All I can hope is that most of the children of these idiots will hope to be a, will end up being a real disappointment to their parents. We'll have to leave our conversation there. Russ, thank you for the phone call. I want to thank our guests uh, for coming on and, and sharing their feelings here. Paku Hur is principal and lead consultant at Ching Development Group. James Chang, uh, general manager of Waldo Thai. Thank you both for a good conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you, thank Steve, you so much. We've been checking in with some of the uh, Asian American communities in the past uh, talking about this. And 
Uh, and before we let you go today, there's one more thing we wanted to mention that we're excited about. A new pop-up restaurant concept launched yesterday. Little Asian KC's, the brainchild of the ch- a chef owner behind Sura Eats at the Parlor Food Hall. And it plans to feature curbside takeout from rotating chefs representing different regions in Asia. One of the sh- uh, chefs is uh, from yesterday's pop-up is Waldo uh, Tai uh, is joining us now. Chrissy Newcomb is the owner of KC Panoy. That's the Filipino restaurant in the West Bottoms. Chrissy, nice to have you. Thanks for having me, Steve. Chrissy, if I understand this right, the concept behind this pop-up, Little Asia KC, is to create a temporary place where people can try a lot of different kinds of cuisine modeled after places like Chinatown or Koreatown and other big cities, since we don't have a designated area like this here in Kansas City. Um, Tell us about that. Yeah, the collaboration started out um, when Kiang wanted to have a um, kind of a pop-up for all the Asian restaurants who are currently closed or doing um, uh, kind of a restricted, uh, like a a smaller menu um, right now, like Waldo Thai. But Asian, Asian cuisine is usually about family and community. So with social distancing right now we're trying to find a way to bring all these asian dishes together in one table so we decided to bring in different cuisines from different Hmm. asian countries and so that gives an opportunity for families or friends to have you know taiwanese korean filipino and thai food all in the same table um, and trying to feel that sense of community even though we're still far apart. And yesterday, I understand you sold out in 20 minutes? Um, actually, I was told it was 15 minutes. So we, uh, we opened, <laughs> I stand corrected. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, opened, uh, we opened the pre-order at 3.30, and um, uh, we were told that um, while working the line that at 3.30, we had 40 orders in queue at 3.30. And by 3.45, um, James uh, Chang, who you had on the uh, program a while ago, actually closed ordering because wow. we were at a hundred. We were at a hundred orders in fifteen minutes. Wow! And um, yeah, so it it was it was um, you know it was very heartwarming because our goal was to um, give some sort of glimmer of hope that you know even though we're not all together, that we're still working to provide some sort of enjoyment to people. And I think that, you know, that was a that was a great sense of uh, support from all our all our uh, customers. Um, we do want to say sorry to <laughs> everyone who tried to order a little bit later and pretty much were not able to. Right. And for those who were waiting for the food, it, it was a little bit of a wait because we weren't we we weren't expecting I think we were hopefully expecting to have a huge turnout, but we were realistically hoping for, right. you know, maybe 40, 50 orders at well, a time. <laughs> well, Chrissy, have you scheduled um, another pop-up at this point? Uh, yes, we um, we are doing another one. Um, we are planning on a couple of improvements. Um, we're we're uh, probably going to do um, some form of a pre-order a few days ahead so we can make sure that everyone who wants to have... Right. Um, a Sunday dinner with Little Asia KC will be able to have a chance to order. 
Well, I got to go, Chrissy. That's Chrissy Newcomb. She's the owner of KC Pinoy. That's the Filipino restaurant in the West Bottoms. Thanks, Chrissy. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with more up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City.